And uh, last week was student weekend, and so we got to kind of sit and partake of teaching and worship and stuff, so that was a good time. And so uh, we had a lot of students and a lot of good decisions, and just a great weekend for that. But we continue our series on core. What are our core values? I know each one of us have core values in our own life that guide us and direct us and move us and motivate us. And as a church, we have core values as well. And so over the last few weeks, we've been talking about those core values. And obviously the Bible is important. That's a core value. Uh, people are important. That's a core value. Jesus is important to us as a New Testament church. Uh, that's, that's important. That's a huge core value. And then also this week, we're going to think about this idea of growing in generosity. What does it look like for us to understand that we have been blessed by God and received his extravagant grace and amazing grace. And what does it look like as we grow in our, in our journey to experience that and to also pass that on to other people? One of the terms that I like to use is we kind of become like Teflon, is that God gives to us and we receive it and then we pass it on to others as well. And so that's an open-handed living. And uh, so many times we our natural instinct is closed hand that we get it and we don't want to lose it because it's secure. We feel secure with the things that God has given us. And instead of receiving it and being able to say, God, for this moment, thank you for giving that gift to me. How can I pass it on to others so they can share in what you've given me? So this idea of growing in generosity is truly a reflection of our understanding of God's extravagance with us through our embracing of his grace. So in other words, the longer that we live... I believe, this is what I've experienced in my own life, the the longer that I've lived, the more free I offer grace. Because I understand the longer that I live, the messier I am, the more human that I am, and that I'm not as perfect as I thought I was at 13. Okay? And so we're continually growing. And as we get older, yes, some ways, maybe we there's some of those things that used to tie us down and we were trying to find freedom from, we find freedom from those things, but also in the midst of our messiness and of doing life and our humanness, we also understand that it's because of God's grace, because of his long suffering and his patience with us, that we can be even more extravagant with others. And it allows us to do friendships and to do life and to be a grace-filled people. That's why one of our uh, core values here is no perfect people allowed, because if there was perfect people allowed, this would be an empty place, right? So generosity growing in that. We cannot remove ourselves from our understanding and application of God's word from our cultural context, right? And so we are the wealthiest people that have ever lived. And now some of us don't feel wealthy because of Mr. Visa or Mrs. MasterCard or whatever we've got. We've got tied down to those things. But by the fact of just living in the United States, you are considered in the top 5% of wealthiest people in the world. Even those that struggle still, by historical standards, are considered wealthy. The question for us this morning is not is what, what do we treasure most in this What eternal impact will our wealth have? Think about this. What eternal impact will the money that God grants us and the blessings that God gives us, what eternal impact will those things have? That'll be the questions that we're asked when we're done with life and we enter into this this time of heaven. I think that's one of the questions that's going to be asked is, well done, my faithful servant. What have you done with the tools and the resources that I've given you? 
the story of an old man who was a, a monkey hunter, and one of the ways that he would catch monkeys is he realized that monkeys were selfish creatures. And so he took that selfish creature thing, and he created coconut. He didn't create coconuts. He took coconuts, cut a little hole in it just small enough so that a monkey could reach his hand in there and tied a rope to the other end. And he would put a little treat in there, a banana or something, and the monkey would smell it and come and would reach his hand into the coconut and wiggle his hand in to get the prize And immediately the hunter knew that he had a monkey. So he would pull the monkey, and the monkey captured could have freedom if all it had to do was to release its hand from the banana or whatever was inside, but because of his selfish nature, could never let go of it. That's us many times with the things that God gives us is that we kind of put our hand in there, and it kind of binds us and ties us down and weights us down, and it's pulling us away, and we know that it's not to a place that's life-giving, but we continue to hold on to it. We want freedom, but we're not willing to give up what we got a hold of. Also, the way to catch wolves is they take a knife, big, long knife, and they coat it in blood, several layers of blood over and over and over again, and they freeze it. And then they set it out in the middle, and a wolf will smell the blood, the thing that it's tempted by, the thing that it's attracted to, and will go to that blade and will continue to lick that blade over and over and over again until not only is it the frozen blood that they're tasting, but it's even their own. The very thing that is drawn to them takes life from them. The same thing is true with some of the things that we're drawn to, that we get tied to, that our selfish nature, our desire for security draws us in. We hold to those things, and they actually take life from us. We think that they're going to bring freedom, but so many times they tie us down. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6, and verses 5 and following. And here Jesus is going about, and John's, whenever John writes, John's a pretty quick writer. He goes from one miracle to one situation to another situation to another situation. And so in John's gospel, in John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. And then in John 4, he has a discussion with a Samaritan woman at the well. And then in John chapter 5, he heals an official son. An official walks up to Jesus and says, my son needs healing. And Jesus Asked the question of what is what else does he need? And he said, I just need for you to heal my son. And Jesus says, in that moment, your son is healed. And his without Jesus even being physically present, the young boy was raised back to life and was healed. And then right before our passage, Jesus is, happens to be, coincidence, right, Jesus' ministry, he happens to walk, be walking by the pool of Bethsaida. And as he walks by the pool, he recognizes this guy, and he's been standing there. He has a reputation for someone who's gone year after year after year and sat by the pool because there was a story, there was this idea that if this waters stirred, that if you were able to jump into those waters, you would be healed. And so there are people that needed healing with leprosy, of blindness of whatever sickness and couldn't walk leprosy all these different things they would come every day and they would sit by the pool well somehow or another this guy would get there i guess his friends or family would take him and then they would go off to work and so if the water stirred there was no one there to put him in the water so he was literally going there with this opportunity of hope before him but could never reach it and so eventually jesus walks by and says hey do you want to get healed and the guy's answer was like well duh I'm here, I've been here day after day after day. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus always asks people what do they want. He doesn't assume. The guy may have been going to the pool over and over and over again and not really wanted to get healed. And so Jesus asks the question, do you want to get healed? And the guy's like, yeah, I want to get healed. 
And so Jesus says, get up and take your mat and walk. And so the guy gets up and he walks away and he's carrying his mat. And so here's what the good religious people do is they see this guy that they've seen there day after day after day at the pool and they stop him and they say, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? They so worry about the religious people, so worry about the little minutia of details. They're thinking, hey, you're carrying a mat on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be doing work. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're missing the point here. You guys saw me day after day after day at the deal. And you saw my friends drop me off. And I could not walk. And now I'm walking. And you're concerned about me carrying a stinking mat? This religion stuff is for the birds. And so this is... You see this in the Gospel of John of Jesus pointing out of the things that we concern ourselves with that truly do not matter. What matters is allowing Jesus to transform our hearts and our lives. And that's one of our core values here as well is pointing people to Jesus, not the other things. So if you have your Bibles, jump with me to John chapter 6. So he's just healed this paralytic guy at the pool on Sabbath and they're worried about all these different things. And So people are following Jesus. So as Jesus leaves town, you can imagine, they've heard this is happening, the rumbles, it's going around, and so people are following Jesus out to the mountaintop. And as Jesus and his disciples are at their mountain, and they're looking out, Jesus looks at his eye watch, and he says, it's about lunchtime, guys. And there's at least 5,000 coming here, and Subway is closed. What are we going to do? One of the guys answers. So here we are. So Jesus, looking out, saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, one of his disciples, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. So immediately they put together a committee and they voted to have this party. No, I'm just kidding. All right, you all ready? So here's what he did. Then Andrew, this guy of faith, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy over here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Now here's an interesting thing to think about is they had just seen Jesus turn these canisters of water into the best wine that anyone had ever had. They had just seen Jesus heal this young man's son, and he wasn't even physically present, and they'd heard those stories. They had just seen Jesus have this encounter with a Samaritan woman and and that deal. They had just seen Jesus walk by a guy and say, what do you want? I want to be healed. Get up and take your mat. So they had just seen all these things. And so even in this moment, they weren't prepared that Jesus could do something miraculous. So if these guys that are living with Jesus still struggle with faith and they still have doubt and all that, surely we are going to have some of those same things because we're not even in his midst physically a part of this, okay? So here's Jesus' response in verse 10. Tell everyone to sit down. So they all sat down on grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. So this is entitled the feeding of the 5,000, but most likely... It's 15 to 20 to 25,000 people. So that, that, cause there's wives, there's children, there's all this different stuff. So there's a crowd of people and the sound guys wondering how are we going to get sound out to these 25,000 people and the food committee's worried about how are we going to get this. And so this is like chaos and Jesus is like, you guys sit down. 
I got this. I've got a little boy over here who's got some bread and some fish, and we are about to have a buffet break out, okay? And so here's what happens. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God. Even in what seems like poverty, Jesus gave thanks to God and distributed them to the people. And afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. Have you ever been to that moment where there's food so good, you eat as much as you want to where you literally, if you put one more morsel in your mouth, your body is going to explode? Okay, that's what I imagine. These guys are like, this is so good. I've never had bread. The person who cooked, this is the best bread I've ever had. Man, I don't know about this black and tilapia. It is awesome. And they're just like taking this stuff in, and they're enraptured by this whole thing. They got everything they wanted from this little morsel of what seemed like poverty, they got exactly what they needed, their full fullness of that moment. Look at verse 12. After everyone was full, Jesus told the disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. And they picked up the pieces and 12 baskets were filled with scraps left by the people who had eaten them from the five barley loaves and the two fish. That's awesome. In a place of poverty that many would go, I've only got five loaves and two fish. Jesus met a buffet to where everyone was full. 20,000 people were able to eat. What happens when we give? What happens when we take what we think is too small a gift or too small of an offering that all we've got is five loaves and two fish? What happens with it? Listen, this is God's math. And I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it in other people's lives, the stories they tell me, like, Chris, two plus two with God's money does not equal four. It usually equals five. It usually equals ten. It usually equals a hundred. And it's one of those things that's unexplainable that you, when we begin to say, I'm going to give the little bit that I have, begin to give of some of that and watch God do miraculous things. So the first thing that happens when we give is when we give, we're honoring God. Everything's God's anyway. Everything is God's anyway. Because it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. So even our life, our job, our talents, our skills, as good as we are at at what we're doing, that's God's gift to us, and it's his. Five loaves and two fish, really, that's our offering for us. We bring five loaves and two fish before God and say, God, this is all I've got, but do something with it. And miraculously, he does great things. Deuteronomy 8.18 says this, Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power to be successful. For some persons, he gives you the power to produce wealth. In other words, the very reason that you're able to make money and to put food on the table and to do the things you do is because God has given it to you and granted it to you. It's not yours. It's his. It's on loan to you for a little bit so that you can fulfill the covenant that he confirmed to the ancestors with us. In other words, he's going to take care of us. He's going to provide for us as his children. He's going to take care of his kids. This idea of, of first fruits is what he's wanting. He's wanting us to, to give of the first fruits. And so I know that we're not a, necessarily an agricultural group. I can't even grow grass in my house. I can grow weeds, but not grass. And so 
this idea of first fruits is that as people were doing their growing of things, the first fruits, they would pull that and they would give it as an offering. They would literally take it to the temple and the priests and others would share it so that people would have enough to feed others. People would come to the church and say, hey, I need something to eat, and they would do that. And they would also even just kind of leave a little bit on the side so that those that were poor could glean from those fields. But this idea of us giving God the first fruits of our income, the first fruits of the things that he allows us to produce and to grow, and then the seconds are for us. And so how can we live off of those seconds? Matthew six nineteen and 21. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. In other words, if you look at your bank statement, where's your treasure? Where's your heart? For the most we say, hey, we, we, we put a lot of money into our children. We put a lot of money into education. We put a lot of money into, you can, literally, you can see the trail, and that is the things, those are the people that we treasure the most. We, we put money toward, we invest in those things that we treasure the most. And so Jesus is saying to us in this moment, what is it you treasure the most? What is it that's the most valuable to you? I can tell you by looking at your bank statement. Pretty powerful words. Some of you are going to go home today and look at your bank statement. You're going to realize, man, I really love coffee, right? Or I really love Mexican food or something. I mean, you're going to realize, hey, my kids are like fourth or fifth. I love coffee more than my kids. We might need to rearrange some things. And so what do we love? Your checkbook register in the old days, it's the roadmap to your heart. What you treasure most receives the most investment. What does it mean for us to grow in generosity? It means for us continuing to give more and more away each year. That as we kind of get again to understand, I mean, like, you know, it is you get to that point when you're like eight or nine or ten or eleven, and Christmas morning, you're like, yes, give me, and you can't wait. There's this anticipation of like, man, I want to get this, and then at some point, there's this maybe for some, I don't know, but for me, there's just this point where it's like, yeah, it's. It's Christmas morning, but it's more about seeing others receive and others being taken part in. And what does that look like for us in our faith journey of, like, look, it's good to get gifts. Those are great. But I, I, I love giving more and seeing how that others are receiving of the gifts and what it does for them, or what, what it looks like to buy lunch for someone or to, to do something for someone that kind of catches them off guard and they realize that other people are watching them and caring for them, this growing in generosity. The second thing when we give is that it blesses other people. There are people in great need everywhere, and we're called to assist them. I mean, that's our goal. That's what we're doing. To love our neighbor means to step into their situations. And if we can solve it or be a part of solving it, let's jump into it. Jesus modeled this, obviously, throughout his adult life. As he was going around and around, he was asking the question, what do you need? And then he was fulfilling those needs. The same thing is true for us, is that if we begin to have eyes for asking that question, is what does it mean? What does it look like to love our neighbor? What do they need? And even asking those questions, it's not being afraid of, of offending, but saying, hey, what, what do you need? What can I do for you? And them saying, this is what I need. And us, if we have the ability to step in and to help. And if we don't, do we know someone that can step in and help? 
and to do that. that. That's what neighboring is. That's what caring for each other is, is as a community together, we can accomplish so much more and, and love more effectively in that way. In Acts chapter 4, we see the early church, the New Testament church is just blowing and going and people are coming to Christ. And one of the main reasons is because of Acts 4, 34 and 35, there were no needy people among them. Now, does it say wealthy people? No, no needy people were among them because those who owned land or houses or who had great wealth were able to sell some of their stuff and bring money to the apostles so that they could distribute to those that were in need. That those that had the ability and the opportunity in that moment to, to provide something for someone else who needed it, truly needed it, were able to fill in and to step in. Generosity, our generosity blesses others. But let's be honest, most of us, we want to be generous, but we are so obligated to our debts that we can't be generous. That's, that's the truth of our American culture is we're the wealthiest culture, but we're also the most indebted culture. And so because, because we have such great hope in our money and our future earnings, we bank on ourselves. And so we actually tie ourselves down to, and we don't allow ourselves to be generous in the moment because we're so banking on the future. And God says for us to so just be free. We sang about it. I want to be free. And for some of us, even as we're singing that song, we're thinking about my finances and our bank account. And like, I've got a dollar left and I got $500 of bills. We want freedom. Generosity, we have to remove ourselves from those things. So let's think about the last time you received a gift. All right, imagine with me. Can you see that gift? Close your eyes for just a second. Think about the last time you received a gift. It may have even been Christmas. Can you see that gift? When you received it, how did you feel? Did you enjoy receiving that gift? Did the gift bless you? If so, you probably, maybe you need to write a thank you note and be reminded. All right, you can open your eyes. And I, I was recently, I received a coffee pot. Someone gifted me with a coffee pot. Now you're thinking, oh, great. And uh, But listen, this is like the coffee pot of all coffee pots, man. It's like cool. And, and my wife, we were, I was somewhere and I saw it and I was like, ooh, and all over it. I mean, it, it was like it was some of you guys like, look, our Corvette, you know, or something like that, or a 69 Camaro. Like, whoa, look at the lines on that baby. What if you push the button? What is it going to do? You know what I mean? You got that. And that's what I'm looking at, this coffee pot. And I'm thinking, whoa, look at the lines on that baby. What can it do? And it's like, whoa, it's got an app. Like, I could be somewhere else in town, and I can start my coffee, and I can get home, and it's ready. Like, I am on this. And Becky's like, you have a perfectly good coffee pot at home. I know it doesn't have an app, but I will be the app. The kids can be the app. You just call us, and we will start coffee. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is like the pot of all coffee pots. (laughs) So I go to Puerto Rico. And I come back, and in the meantime, my coffee pot, for real, guys, I didn't break this, it broke. <laughs> so the very next time I used it, like, it did not work. It was like, <laughs> like, blew up. And I tell Becky, I was like, hey, listen, my coffee pot's broke. And she goes, no, it is not. It is not. You are trying to manufacture a need for a coffee pot. 
I'm like, listen, listen, I know, I know that I would do that normally, but I'm not, I'm serious. And she's like, I am making you a pot of coffee right now. Okay, okay. And so, in the meantime, so I waited, and, and thankfully there's good coffee shops in town. It had been a week or so. And lo and behold, I come into my office one day, and there's this box. And there's that coffee pot. Wow. The generosity of someone hearing me talk about it and going, hey, I just want to gift that. And man, I, I love this thing. I press the app so you can come over with me and we can ooh and ah over it together. It's not a 69 Camaro, but it is an awesome coffee pot. So when you give to second, you're giving to God's work. You're giving to bless others. And so many times when we give, we don't see where our money goes. But listen, there's kids upstairs that are hearing the gospel, that there's adults that are loving on them and caring for them because of your gifts. There's students this past weekend that were able to, to be cared for and loved for and hear the gospel and adults loving on them. And the things that we do in the community when we're at Smack and Fest or Trick or Treat on the Square and all the different things. And when we say for LaGrange, that's our gifts as together as a community moving forward. It's our five loaves and our two fish together. It's a, the counseling center that we have here that she's part-time, but she has a waiting list and she sees 25. I mean, it's just amazing that she's like, Chris, I can't keep up. And so we're talking about adding. And so that's your gifts of the counseling center. It's us going to Puerto Rico in a few weeks and all the other things we've been able to do over the last few years and um, different things. It's even the live stream that people watch um, and, and things in the new future with new campuses and new places and life change that happens, when you give, that blesses other people. Not only does it bless others, but when we give, we ourselves are blessed. We're blessed by our own giving. Do you think that boy ever forgot that experience? And for the rest of his life, he was going around and saying, hey, man, I was that dude. People will start talking about, hey, do you all remember when Jesus fed the 20,000? He's like, my fish, my bread. It was good. Wasn't it? My mama can cook. His mom, his family, his friends, no one forgot that experience. If you've ever, ever been on a mission trip, if you've ever been serving in a community project and you've just worked shoulder to shoulder with other people and you've been in a place where someone was in need and you were able to help, there's something about giving of yourself. You're worthlessly tired at the end of the day. You can't give anything else, but you walk away and you're like, man, this is the best thing ever. Because that's what we're created to do. We're created in the image of God. For God so loved that he gave extravagantly. And we are most like him when we give extravagantly. That it literally costs us and it hurts. That you reach into your wallet and you say, man, I've got 20 bucks that I can do something with. But you need it more than I do. you, You can have this. Then that moment of meeting people's needs when they need it the most. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 10 and 12. Bring all of your tithes, bring all of your gifts into the storehouse so there will be enough food in the temple so we can share. And if you do, says the Lord of the armies, heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a great blessing so that you won't have enough room to even take it in. Try it. This is the only place in Scripture that God says this. Put me to the test. Put me to the test. Listen, I want to tell you, this is 
the hardest thing, I think, for people to do in our faith journey. Man, we can study the Bible, we can do mission trips, we can do all this different stuff, but when it comes to our money, I think it's the hardest thing because we're just, we're like, but God, I might need it. But God, I worked hard for it. But God, I mean, we all these buts. And God says, but God so loved that he gave. And I want you to experience what it's like to give. That your heartbeat, that the thing that you treasure most is me and you're willing to give up just a little bit. And to experience my heart, the extravagance of giving away some of the things that you treasure most for the benefit of other people. Giving stuff up. Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor and an author in the story of Runs with Horses, recalls a a moment whenever he was out on a hike. And as he was out on this hike, he stopped for a moment. He heard some birds chirping and he was watching these birds. And he got the opportunity to watch a mama bird with three of her little chicks. And it was that moment where the little chicks were going to experience the most frightful moment of their life. And when it's when Mama Bird is on the edge with them and is pushing them off of the side so that they can fly. Because the Mama Bird knows that in that moment that they fly, that they're going to experience what they're created for. And so Mama Bird's on the edge, and she's got these three little chicks. And so she gets the first one and keeps pushing, pushing, pushing. And look, what's happening? And jumps off and begins to flap furiously. And right before it hits the water, it takes off. I'm sure Mama's like, yes! Not a failure to launch. They're gone. I don't have to feed them anymore. And then the second one. And again, the same thing. Right before it hits the water, it takes off. And then the third one is the spoiled kid. The youngest got to do whatever it wanted to do. Didn't have to, had, didn't have to wear hand-me-downs because it was a different size than the other. You know, all that stuff. And so here's the youngest one, and they're pushing, 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 and pushes, and like clings to the edge. So we're literally mama bird has to like peck. Can you know as a parent that that is pure agony to like get out of the house? And finally, the pain was so much that the bird let go and just began to fall. And right before it hit the water, took off. The same thing that those birds felt of that freedom and experiencing what they were created to do, even though it took some pushing and some nudging, is the same thing for us. Is in those moments when we are generous with our neighbors and begin to look at other people's needs and say, how can I join in and be a part of handing up in the midst of the messiness of life, is when we are pushed off the edge and we're literally experiencing the most beautiful moments where we know that we are being blessed even more than we're blessing others because we're doing what we're created to do. For God so loved that he gave extravagantly. And that's what we're called to do. And it's in those moments that we understand God's amazing grace and his generosity. So over the next few weeks, I want to challenge you. If you're not giving, take a 90-day challenge. Put God to the test. Not putting Chris to the test. 90 days. So if you're not giving, $5, $10, whatever it is, 
and just begin to see that thing of five loaves and two fish and ask the question at the end of those 90 days, is God's math different than my math? I guarantee you that it will be. Take that challenge and grow in your generosity over these next few days. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your generosity with us. Thank you for your patience and long-suffering and with us. Father, I pray over these next few days that each one of us in this room will ask that question, what will my wealth do for all of eternity? The resources that you've given me, Father, what will I do with them in a way that it will impact eternity? Father, may we evaluate our wealth in that way. Father, some of us, we don't necessarily feel wealthy. Father, I pray that we would understand that our wealth is not built on what we make, but whose we are. And that we are wealthy as your children, but also because we live in this place, that we have opportunities to make side money that people, places around the world, don't make in an entire year or an entire lifetime. We can make in a side hustle. So again, Father, may you just open our eyes to the world around us that you see. May we weep over our Jerusalem. And may we love our neighbors in a way that you would ask us to love. It's in your son's name that we pray.